0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 14 as we move from one familiar passage into another. I think for many young uh, children in the church, this is probably one of their favorite passages because it involves something that perhaps even looks like a ghost. We enjoyed reading it as a child, and then find out, well, it's far more important than that. God's Word, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, He, that's Jesus, He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, while He dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him they sent around to all that region and brought to him all that were sick and implored him that <clears throat> sorry implored him that they might touch only the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well Father in heaven your word is perfect we are not the only way that great chasm can be breached as through Christ Jesus and your Spirit working within. Would He give life and light for Christ's sake? Amen. It's a blessing to be a pastor of a church that has so many people involved in the educational process? I mean, think about just what percentage of this church is involved in some form or fashion with the educational system. We have some that are teachers, either at home or in private schools or in public schools. We have some that are involved in administration. We have many that are students Such a a huge percentage of this church, even having those that teach at a graduate level. And it's fun because you get to think about kind of just the teaching endeavor, the teaching process, and uh, have fun sorts of conversations about what life has been like in the classroom or at home uh, over the last year and what the insanity of our world has been. But it does give us opportunity to kind of in this moment have a little bit of a conversation as to what the most important end of education is. Like, what's the goal of education? Is it to get letters after your name? For some of us, maybe that's why we went to college or went to grad school or whatever else it is. I don't really care about learning. I just want the letters. Is it, do we go to school to graduate? No. You know, what's the most important thing for a teacher to accomplish? Is it to teach their children discipline, right? You need to have discipline in the classroom. If you, if you just have a disciplined thinker, man, everything will be fine if you have a disciplined thinker. No. Is it to, to actually teach the material? No, actually it's not that either. I would argue that I, I think the most important Task a teacher has, and it's certainly the most difficult, is to give their students a sense of wonder at the material. In fact, if we were to, as a, a congregation here, have a conversation about our favorite teachers, almost all of us would voice in some fashion our favorite teachers were either the teachers that cared about us the most. Or the teachers that gave us a sense of wonder at the material. To to give us a sense of of marveling at what happened. I, I think of my calculus teacher in high school. Absolutely marvelous. Because she taught us the joy of math. And you hear that and you think, that is impossible. No, it's not. I mean, you know what's impossible To try to be an art history appreciation teacher for this guy. To give a sense of wonder at at what's happened in the world and to give a sense of wonder at this sculpture or this painting or this piece of music. To take us out of our our kind of small parochial little mindset and to, to pull our minds into the grandeur of what we're looking at. It is my goal today in this sermon that Matthew and the Holy Spirit and me would challenge all of us to, to have our mind pulled out of just the, the normal kind of meat and potatoes of life and to come into a greater sense of wonder at King Jesus and what He's done. First, I think it would be appropriate for us to contemplate just briefly uh, an opportunity to marvel at King Jesus for His view of prayer. Right? Matthew's been telling us the story of, of Christ Jesus. He is the King of God's kingdom. He is also God incarnate. He is this person that kind of melts our brain. He is 100% man. He is 100% God in one person without those things merging or mingling. He's, he's not 50% God. He's not 50% man. He's not 100% something weird and different. He's 100% both simultaneously. And because of his just immense beauty and character as being both God and man, Matthew has been challenging us to kind of contemplate with with a sense of wonder at what Jesus is doing. This chapter alone, we've watched Jesus feed 5,000 taking just a few loaves of bread and a a couple of fish and and miraculously and marvelously distributing it to feed a crowd of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Huge crowd. Certainly, probably one of the largest crowds these people would have ever seen in their lifetime at this point. And if we were tracking this, you know, kind of the ministry of Christ through this book, thus far we would probably have to say, look, he's hit the high point of his ministry. I mean, he has at this point most likely an opportunity to preach to 12,000 people that are ready to listen to him in that neighborhood. And again, I mean, just, I love to think about kind of from our circumstance, what would our session have done? We've, we've got 12,000 people in front of us. They've, they've just been miraculously fed. And I imagine we would have probably said something to the effect of, hey, man, strike while the iron's hot. Don't care how bad the sermons are. You better start preaching and preach as long as your voice holds out or as long as they'll listen. Right? That's what we would have expected is you have this gigantic crowd that's ready to engage Jesus. You would think this is it, right? This is when he's actually coming into his own. In fact, John actually tells us in in chapter 6 that when this happens, the crowd, after he feeds him, the crowd tries to grab him and actually ordain him as king right there. They want to anoint Jesus as king of the Jews right there in their midst. Now, ironically, he already is king of the Jews. They just haven't figured that out yet. I mean, from a human standard, this is as good as it gets. You have a a, a crowd that's so behind you. They they so endorse you and believe you. They're they're trying to make you uh, king right then and there. Come on, Jesus, strike while they aren't hot, man. Right, you got everybody's ready, paying attention. They're all there. They're on board. Right? Do it, man. Come on. Jesus forces the disciples to get into a boat and leave, and then he forces the crowds to leave. Which, again, from our kind of American perspective of the bigger is better, this would be a baffling decision. (laughs) They're literally trying to crown you as king. And he's like, go away. You got to go home. Can't stay here. You got to leave. And it would beg the question for all of us to kind of go, well, okay, so what's important? What is so important that Jesus would send away the largest crowd he's seen in his ministry up to date, send away even his disciples? so that he can go into the wilderness, into the hills, into the mountains. 23, after he dismissed the crowds, he goes up onto the mountain by himself to pray. this is one of those sentences that I think most of us kind of sort of just take for granted. Oh, of course Jesus prayed. He's Jesus. I mean he's God, he doesn't, he doesn't need anything. Why wait a minute, why would he pray? And we, we don't actually stop and pause and reflect a lot. Why why would Jesus pray? <laughs> he's God incarnate. He is deity in flesh. He has the Spirit of God indwelling him fully, so that he is fully anointed and fully filled by the Spirit of God. He is the Messiah. That's what that means. He has no limit to his own power. Should he be lacking anything, he just couldn't make it. He literally just did that with food enough to feed a town. Didn't have enough food, I'll make more. Doesn't matter. It's not like it was an inconvenience to him. We got five loaves, two fish, great. That'll be enough. But it's intriguing that he goes up onto the, the mountain to pray, and honestly, by best guess, friends, he's up there, at, at best guess, he's there for the neighborhood of seven hours in prayer. Best guess. Which again, we, we kind of pause and marvel at, and we think, well, of course Jesus can pray like that. Some of us have never actually tried to pray for longer than five minutes. Some of us when we come to Wednesday night prayer meeting when we pray for twenty five minutes in a row, it, it it challenges our minds to think through it. What would you say for seven hours? I love that that Jesus is, from the very beginning here, he's displaying his view of prayer is infinitely higher than our view, which is crazy because he didn't need anything. I need everything, and I'm hesitant to pray. He needed nothing, and he was never hesitant to pray. There's an amazing irony in that. I need all kinds of help. My heart is prone toward evil. My body is weak. My spirit is tired. My resources are limited. We have so many struggles, and we're so hesitant to pray. Jesus, on the other hand, filled with the Spirit of God, deity incarnate, having all of the power that he could ever need to have, and yet devoted himself to prayer. I suspect one thing he's displaying for us here is that uh, the central element of prayer is actually to just be with God himself. Prayer, again, is designed to be just like our worship service. It's designed to be conversation. God speaks to us in His Word. We speak back to Him in prayer. Now, in our worship service, we have two different kinds of prayers, really. We have those that we pray, and then we have those that we sing, but it's all conversing with God. It's meeting with God. It's being with God. As a word of application, friends, I might just challenge you, challenge you to adopt a, more, a greater habit of prayer. And I, I understand immediately your, your push back in your head is, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, yeah, you don't do it. It's like when we were 15 or 16 years old, depending on which state you were in, and oh, I don't know how to drive a car. I know. You haven't driven one. Guess what? Two hours behind the wheel, you'll figure it out pretty well. And I told you all that story. My driver's ed took place on Providence Road at 530 in the evening. Never afraid of driving after that. I didn't kill anybody or myself then. I'll be all right. If you can handle that, you can handle it. Prayer's the same way. You just have to do it. Certainly, there's resources to help us, but doing it is an important thing. Jesus himself devoted himself to prayer, and, and some of us, intriguingly, are unwilling to follow the path that he himself followed. opportunity, too, for us to marvel at what Jesus is doing here is uh, we get a chance to to marvel at his strategic use of difficulty. Uh, There's a lot more happening in this passage than we would just kind of first blush read, largely because most of us uh, don't know our kind of geography and history and things like that. Um, Jesus absolutely maximizes the punch of this occurrence. All right, we, uh, we know from one of the other Gospels that when they're feeding the 5,000, the reason why the disciples are so snarky and kind of snappy at Jesus when he says, you go feed them, and then we don't even anything to feed them with. Uh, the answer is because they've been so busy for so long, they themselves haven't eaten. All right, the feeding of the 5,000, the first meal they've had that day, they've been so busy for multiple days in a row with this crowd, they're exhausted. They're absolutely gassed. They're fried. It is honestly genuinely amazing they didn't fall asleep as soon as they finished eating. Jesus, and this is the part that is just amazing, they haven't eaten all day. They've been kind of managing, I can't imagine I heard the cats of 12,000 people trying to listen to Jesus and then eating like that. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, go hop in a rowboat and row across the lake all night. Best guess, they hop in, the lake, uh, hop in the boat and around 7 p.m. is a good guess, probably 7 to 9 judging by kind of how this was operating. And they immediately start rowing and as they start rowing, a storm sets in and they are at it. Now some of you, Extreme weirdos out there have tried rowing as a, a form of exercise and you understand that it is near about the fastest way to have a heart attack aside from shoveling wet snow. It is unbearably difficult, much less trying to row a boat large enough to hold a dozen or 15 people or so and then doing it in a storm against the wind and it's awful. In fact, actually Matthew gives us a good guess as to how awful it was. They row approximately from 7 to 8 p.m. until Jesus meets them, which is at some point between 3 and 6 a.m. They are literally up all night. And interestingly, they make approximately, again, comparing Matthew, Mark, and John, about four and a half miles of, of progress. They are killing themselves rowing so hard. So I, I love it. It's, it's the perfect recipe, right? They're they're tired. They've been peopled out. Can you imagine being around a crowd that size when you're in charge, having no idea what's going to happen? Uh, they're uh, mentally exhausted. They're uh, emotionally exhausted. And then now, oh, by the way, go hop in this boat and row until you almost die. They're physically exhausted. Oh, and on top of that, it's through the middle of the night, So not only have you done it uh, in in such physical exhaustion, you've done it in the dark and with no sleep. I uh, remember how, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, the idea of pulling an all-nighter was, you know, kind of almost exciting and fun of, ooh, I I can go without sleep for a night and it'll be great. At 40, that's not fun anymore much less the idea of staying up all night and rowing. I'll pass. You see, what Jesus has done in this situation is He's placed them in, like, it is the perfect recipe of, like, destroying all of their defenses. Emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted, personally exhausted, spiritually exhausted, they are absolutely empty. And some point between 3 and 6 a.m., the interchange takes place. And you can imagine how it happened probably, right? Most of the guys would have been sitting facing forward or trying to sleep if they're not throwing up. The nausea probably would have been there, though not as bad for them as it would be for most of us. They're sailors by trade, many of them. The only guys probably facing backwards would be the guys on the oars. One on each, probably, maybe two, tied together. Pull, pull, trying to get the boat to make forward progress through the storm. And you can imagine how it happened, right? You, you, you kind of crest a wave, and as you're there, you're thinking, oh man, I am, I'm, I'm really going to die now. I'm having a heart attack. I'm hallucinating, because I think I saw a guy standing on top of one of the waves back there. I must be losing my mind. Maybe it's my turn to get off the oar and somebody else needs to replace me. Perhaps it's been the fact that at this point I might not have slept for 24 hours and only had one exceedingly large meal. And as they continue to pull that person again, I love how the waves sort of operated. You might have seen him far off and then he gets a little bit closer and at one point one of the men on the oar had to have turned to the other one and be like, did you see that? Did you see that? It also explains their response in verse 25 that when he gets close enough, they absolutely lose their minds. It's a ghost, right? They're terrified because what on earth is going to be doing this in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake, they're literally halfway from every single shore. There is no hope for them. And then all of a sudden, there's a guy standing on the waves, Sometimes the language doesn't carry uh, quite enough emotional oomph, though Matthew's using it that way. This would be one of those cases. (laughs) The end of verse 26, and they cried out in fear. That's a general understatement, right? They're, They're terrified. Absolutely terrified. And I love what really the lesson you're getting to learn here. Jesus is unbelievably strategic in this. This is not a a situation where he doesn't know what he's doing or uh, not a situation where he's not perfectly measured out for his people the difficulty that he's intended for them. This is is not a mistake. There's, There's no element of this challenge. There's no element of this situation that he's kind of forgotten about. And, and part of this is, is so important for us to understand is that when Jesus and God ultimately interact with creation, they do not interact with creation reactively. This was not the situation where Jesus was like, well, golly gee, guys, All shucks, we had the crowd, and now there's a storm. And, well, rats, they left me behind. I better figure out a way to get out there. You know what? I'll just hoof it across the lake. It'll be fine. Maybe that'll work. No, that's not it. It, The Lord does not interact with creation reactively. It's not like we do, where we have circumstances placed upon us, and we have to figure out how to respond, right? That great human uh, maxim, uh, life is... uh, you know, 10% circumstances 90% 90% responding to circumstances. That's not true for God. Please hear this for a moment. There is no reaction to circumstances for God. He doesn't react because he ordains. That is an absolute like massive category difference. Jesus is not sitting there figuring out, well, oh, what do I do? Aw, shucks. How do I handle this situation? No, instead, this is a, a situation where God has, as with all situations, ordained it to every minute little detail to accomplish His purpose. And friends, that's really easy for us to kind of contemplate. When we're not the ones that are so petrified, we think we're going to die. That's a a, a reality that's easy for us to kind of contemplate when it's emotionally sterile. I don't have anything at stake. It's easy to say that God ordains difficulty when my life isn't in the moment of difficulty. But you need to hear this. That sickness that you've been given, it was ordained for you. That friend or neighbor or spouse or child that is absolutely driving you up the wall, they were ordained for you. That boss that continues to ride your case, that makes you hate every Monday morning, he or she was ordained for you. That circumstance that's causing the anxiety. Friends, I'm going to lovingly say, that's why I read that passage earlier. (laughs) The disciples are in a moment of anxiety here. A little bit. Whatever's sparking your anxiety, fueling your anxiety, fanning it into flame, it, it was ordained by God. It's not Him reacting to just bad luck, it's not Him being like, oh, well, shucks. I hope that Christian can handle it. No, instead, it's what he's given, it's what he's ordained, it's what he's planned, and it's designed for a purpose. I love this story because the moment that the purpose is accomplished, what happens? Jesus hops in the boat, the storm's done, they just make it ashore super easy. Ah, there it is, it's finished. The entire moment of difficulty is manufactured by the Lord to push the disciples to their absolute breaking point, so that one thing would be accomplished, and the moment it's accomplished, the whole thing unravels, He fixes it all. Jesus is a master tactician. And the unfortunate reality is, I think many of us, we forget this when we think about our own lives. When, when we have to engage the things that make us crazy and the things that make us angry and the things that hurt us and the things that make us want to weep, and we sometimes forget the Lord does all things well and His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are greater than my thoughts. And though I don't understand, I'm the one who is short, not God. I'm the one that is limited, not God. I am the one that does not understand, not God. He does all things well. He pushes the disciples in verse 26 to the breaking point. Uh, I'm going to suggest that you actually see how mentally fragile they are by Peter's response. When Jesus says that it's him, Peter's like, great, can I get out of the boat? That is never a sentence that a sailor says in a right frame of mind. Jesus has pushed them to the absolute breaking point. They, they are empty shells of men. There's nothing left. They're broken at their lowest point. And it gives us an opportunity here to marvel at the tenderness of Christ Jesus. You see, what he's done is he's broken them down so that there's nothing left. And what he could do at this point is come in like a bull in a china shop and just wreck them all. But what we see instead is that the Lord Jesus is tenderness incarnate. He's gentleness in human skin. They scream, it's a ghost. They're panicking. Ah, we're all going to die. There's a storm. There's ghosts. We're all going to be pulled to the bottom of the sea. Jews tended to hate the sea anyways because it was so unreliable. 27, Jesus is immediately there, whether the waves hit him and he he pops back up right next to them, whether he runs right up to them, we don't know. He's just, he's there and says to them what is one of the most comforting sentences in the entirety of this gospel. And unfortunately, the English can't capture it. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It's two commands. Imperatives given in the y'all, the second person plural. Y'all be of good courage. Y'all be not filled with fear. Which, again, as we have so often joked, telling somebody not to be afraid doesn't really help much. It's like telling somebody to calm down. doesn't always really help that much, does it? The interesting thing is the sentence in the middle, actually. That's the whole point of the passage. In the midst of a raging storm, with a man standing on the sea, Disciples ready to fall apart. Well, the English translate, and grammatically it's correct. The way the Greek works, you can have uh, predicate objects in this way. What Jesus actually says is, I am. It's the Greek for Yahweh. He's declaring himself to be the very God who made the storm. Greek, it's ego, a he's, he's saying, I am God. You now, the part of that is because God's name in the Greek is the to be verb. It's very challenging on translation. So you get it is I is correct, but that's not what the disciples hear. They're not say, Jesus saying, oh, by the way, I'm not a ghost. I'm Jesus. That's not what they hear. They don't hear him saying, oh, by the way, I'm the guy who, you know, you've walked with. I'm your teacher. I'm your rabbi. What they hear him say, have courage, I'm God, don't be afraid. That's actually why Peter's response is a good illustration of a man who's broken, but having great faith. Look, if you're God, which you just said you were, I'm hopping out of the boat. And you have to think the other, the other disciples are like, are you serious, man? Have you seen the storm? Are you having heat stroke? Do you need something to drink? Jesus says, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat and he does what no other human apart from Christ has done here. Walks on the water and stands on the sea in the middle of a storm. I don't know how far Jesus was out. I suspect that the old pictures in your Sunday school material of him being three feet off the edge of the boat, probably not correct. I'm guessing probably somewhere closer to the 30 to 60 foot range would be my guess. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a trek. And as he finally gets out there, it's like he has a moment of clarity and realizes I'm standing on the sea and begins to panic, and begins to sink. And again, you would think here this is an opportunity for Jesus to be that bull in the china shop, to just be rude, right? How dare you, Peter, you fool. Instead, actually, he does something, verses 31, unbelievably tender, unbelievably tender. Realize this is God incarnate. He could have had the sea spit Peter into the boat. I mean, it would have been awesome to watch, right? The wave grabs him and just right out back into the boat. Could have done that. Could have had a fish come and boink, knock him back into the boat. Three-point shot all the way in. Could have had a wave suck him down and then spit him out on the shore, you know, five miles ahead where they were going. He could have done anything he wanted. Instead, the Lord of life touches him, crosses the gap of his lack of faith, ministers to him in intimacy and contact. You know, honestly, a year ago, we wouldn't really have thought twice about the idea of making physical contact with a person. A year ago, many of us would never have thought about the importance of a hug or a handshake, or squeeze, right? Grab your hand and just give you. Uh, I miss it. I, you know, a year ago, standing in the back of the, the sanctuary, everybody on the way out, get handshakes and hugs. There's a, there's a, a physical intimacy, a, a union, a bonding that is accomplished through physical touch. And interestingly here, Jesus could have gone any other way, but what does he do instead? Is he, he just grabs him. Holds him. and doesn't let go. And gives us this sentence that, again, in English, it's translated correctly. This is absolutely the way it reads in the Greek, but it, I, I think it misses uh, some key element, right? He says, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And many of us have heard sermons probably preached or certainly read it in our own heads where Jesus is angry at Peter. I don't think that's correct. "Oh, you of little faith is actually one word in the Greek. I suspect it's a term of endearment. Right? How many of you, your children or your parents, or they, they had nicknames for you and sometimes had a really funny nickname for you when you did something dumb? Right? Come on, knucklehead, what are you doing? Stop that. You know I love you. Don't do that. Interestingly, Jesus does use this term. He only uses this term specifically for Peter. He has another term that he uses, which is, oh, you of no faith. And interestingly, that's not the one he gives to Peter. And what he does here is, uh, I think, (laughs) this just kind of mind blowing moment. He's holding Peter, maybe his hand, maybe his shoulder, pulling Peter back up onto the top of the sea. The waves are just, you know, swirling all around them. You got a bunch of dudes really confused in a boat, watching the whole thing take place. And Jesus looking at me like, what are you doing, man? Why did you doubt? If I walked on the waves long enough to get here, and then I told you I was God incarnate, did you think I couldn't handle you? It's the point Matthew makes earlier. He he feeds the birds. He clothes the flowers in beauty. Do you think he can't handle you? And again, I think many of us, we tend to forget just this tender moment, this tender interaction that Christ has, and that he, he is always the same. Friends, when He's interacting with you today, even when it feels harsh, He is not. Christ Jesus is incapable of being harsh. It's, he's, it's not possible, he, it's against His character. He can't do it. The same way I, I can't fly like a bird. I am a man, I am not a bird. It is against my nature to do that. It is against His nature to be harsh. Instead, He is gentle. He is tender. He is kind with His people. And friend, whatever circumstance you're in right now that is ruining your soul, please understand He is kind to you even now. He has never stopped being kind. Jesus corrects him, why did you worry, man? 32, again, a profound verse. They hop in the boat and everything's back to normal. It's instantaneously back to normal. The waves are gone, the winds are gone, everything's instantly back to normal. The whole purpose of the exercise was to get the disciples to their absolute most broken point and then have them introduced to the idea that Jesus says he is God incarnate, and what are you going to do with that? Mission accomplished. The waves stop, and you get to see again the heart of the Lord God toward his people. And the last thing for us to marvel at is very quickly. We get to marvel at Christ because all of his interactions with his church, all of his interactions with his people, are designed for our good. If you are a child of God, he cannot hate you. It is against his nature. The same way, I, I can't turn into a bird, I'm a man. Jesus cannot hate you, he, he cannot. Be wrathful at you. God the Father cannot turn His back from you if you are His child because He loves you and you will always be the object of His love. It means everything that we interact with is designed for our good. And so here in this moment, the the wind and the waves disappear. They interact with Christ Jesus. And you get this kind of really deep-seated, honest worship service that breaks out in 33 And all those that were in the boat worshipped him. No joke they did. They have physical, personal, emotional, and spiritual understanding that he is God incarnate. Well, yeah, no joke. (laughs) wonder what the singing sounded like there, probably through some serious tears, I bet. There's another part here in the book of Matthew that is intriguing here. Is that we get to see how, how God's activities are good for His people. And we get to see it specifically for Peter, right? Peter has this most amazing moment. And trying to find out who Jesus is and reacting to, to Jesus' claim that He is God, he, he has this kind of just insane moment of faith. But it changes Him. You see, prior to this passage, Matthew's most common term for Peter is his name, Simon. He almost always refers to him as Simon, eh, maybe 50 50. But you're going to find out, actually, in just about four chapters or so, that the term Peter is really connected to his faith and his confession of faith, which is the foundation of the church. It's not his person, but is the faith that he maintains, that type of faith. From here on out in the book of Matthew, he is called Simon one more time. Everything out, he's called Peter his faith shows up. He's changed. He's a different man, and interestingly, even the way that Matthew tells the rest of the book, he's trying to kind of call our attention, look, the Lord's doing it for your good so that you won't stay the same person, so that next year you're different than you were this year, so that right now you're different than you were last year, and certainly that's true for all of us. I would suggest that many of us, when we interact with our difficulties and our frustrations, it's so easy for us to either grow in despair or to grow in anger and to forget that the Lord does it for our good to change us into the image of His Son. Very quickly, I would just, as your pastor, give you just a couple of brief challenges. One, if you are interacting with your difficulties in a way that is either producing anxiety or is producing depression or is producing anger, you are in sin. There's no kind of ways around that. If your emotional response to what God is doing is anxiety, is depression, or is anger, you're in sin. It is true. Which is amazing, considering that the Lord is doing it for your good, and everything that He's doing is doing it out of complete tenderness and complete gentleness. And friend, you know how to handle this. If you're a child of God and you've been in this church for a while, you know exactly the response. The response is to Repent. Have a conversation with the Lord and tell Him that you are sorry and that you will endeavor to behave differently in the future. Confess your lack of faith. Confess your your anxiety. Confess your fear. Confess your sorrow and your profound sadness, the morose mopiness. Confess the anger that burns within you. Confess that sin and ask that Jesus would change you. Secondly, friends, I would challenge us again, as we talked about at the beginning, with just that that great goal of education is to instill a sense of wonder. Might it be that we would labor together from this day forward as we read our Bibles, both corporately and privately, to, to read them trying to cultivate wonder? Not just to increase our minds, that's good, but to increase our minds in love, our hearts ultimately, marveling at who God is. And then lastly, I think passages like this perhaps challenge us more than any other. To think about the fact that we are called to be people of hope. There's no circumstance that's bigger than our God. might feel that way for a moment. But there's no circumstance that's bigger than our God that He cannot handle. He is the I Am. And if that's true, then I need to be a man of hope. Because God is bigger than whatever it is that's making me crazy. And I can trust Him in that and hope in Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Even when it hurts our feelings, I know this one has hurt mine. And even as we think about this, Lord, we confess our sins. We are a people that tends to pride ourselves in our anxiety, in our depression, and in our anger. And Lord, what a terrible thing to take pride in our sin instead of taking pride in our Savior. And so we ask that you would forgive us and you would cleanse us from the the guilt of sin and cleanse us from the power in Christ who we are unified with and in the Spirit who dwells within us.